Welcome to BitFaced. We're going to take you to the courts on Venice Beach today. We normally talk a lot about video games, and we're not really focused. I've often compared our podcast to ADD. But we're going to focus today, and we're going to talk about one movie and one movie only. And I got to pick. So we're going to start off with one of my favorite films of all time. And every time I tell somebody this at a party or in a social situation, or even the first time I told it to my guest and co-host today... I get laughed at, and they're like, really? That's on your top 20 movies of all time? Really? That's your favorite sports movie of all time? Really? That's the movie that you're going to bring to the table today? And I'm going to tell you, yes, I am. I'm sitting here with my good bud, Casey McMullen. We're going to talk about the classic film, White Men Can't Jump. But before we get into that, Casey, because I know this is going to be released, and I have you here, I want to talk about another sporting event that happened a few weeks back, and that would be the Super Bowl. I just wanted to commend you as a 49ers fan for coming over to my house and bringing delicious food and being a very gracious guest as you watch your team lose to my team. I would say we've been friends for about two years now. Our teams haven't played in the Super Bowl ever. It was kind of kismet. I'm sorry that you were on the losing end of that, but all I have to say is go Chiefs. You know, I came into that day knowing that the Chiefs were probably going to win because their offense is insane this year. And as much as I love my Niners, they're a work in progress. And they had a phenomenal year, a lot to be proud of, but I knew how much it meant to you. And as a friend to you, more than a friend to anyone on the 49ers, (laughs) I was pretty happy the way things turned out. And uh, I think we washed away all my pain with booze anyway. So then it was a good Super Bowl. But Let's go back to 1992, and a young Eric is working at the movie theater, his first job, and a little film called White Men Can't Jump starts playing, and I knew Woody Harrelson from Cheers, probably seen Wesley Snipes, I think he was best known for Mo Better Blues at that time, being in Spike Lee flicks. Wesley and Woody, when this movie came out, were not the Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson of today for... A lot of reasons. This is kind of the movie that broke them, if if, if you want to say that. Natural Brown Killers came out pretty close to this. Would you say it was a jumping off point? <laughs> <laughs> Going to be like that today, huh? Uh, probably. But I'm working in a movie theater, and two of my good buddies at the time, Nick Bacallis and Eric Hendrickson, tell me I have to see this movie, White Men Can Jump. And I watch it. And for whatever reason... It sticks with me, and it stuck with me this whole time. I quote it to this day. I take lessons from it to this day. I don't know why this movie is so special to me. I've watched it twice this week, and both times have been equally as enjoyable. And I know the jokes are coming, and I know the lines are coming, and I, and I still love it. I wanted to talk to you, uh, with you about this, though, Casey, because you're the only white dude I know that plays basketball. <laughs> And you don't have the same tinted glasses that I do looking at this, obviously, because I'm being honest. When I tell people that I love this film, I always get like, you know, there's other movies, right? <laughs> yeah. Did you stop watching movies in 1992 or was it just a uh, nostalgia from working in the theater? Yeah. No, I, I can see a lot of reasons why someone would really take this movie to heart and adapt a lot of the life lessons that are in it. That you can easily look at this movie and go, it's a basketball movie. It's about a couple of dumb guys that do all the things wrong. 
but it's about a lot more than that if you look a little deeper and um I think it's also kind of fun looking in like a time capsule with the uh, attire from the, you know, it's, it's almost laughable now what people wore back then, but uh, it definitely gives it almost like a period piece vibe now watching it in 2020. It's so different, but you can appreciate the differences because the cultural significance of it at that time, it, it still plays into a lot of things today, especially with basketball and shit talking and being a man and also having, you know, a tragic character flaw. All those things are pretty universal as much today as they were then. It's definitely still stuck with the basketball community, at least as far as video games are concerned, because as recently as 2K16 or 17, they had unlockable jerseys from the championship from White Men Can't Jump. They wouldn't do that if the movie didn't have some sort of impact. And I want to say that the jokes and the delivery of the jokes and the insults, and you get the whole your mama scene, that was kind of people are going to laugh that I use the word revolutionary, but at the time it really was. You don't get the shit talking in most film at that point. I think that this brought, and I I want to say that Ron Shelton, one of his goals, he wanted to capture what it was like in the inner city of Los Angeles in the 1990s, and I think he captured it perfectly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I grew up in uh, kind of a rough neighborhood in California, and if you didn't come to school with at least three good your mama jokes in your pocket, you were pretty much dead in the water. I mean, it that whole style of shit talking was completely revolutionary, and I agree with you. The first people to catch those types of things and put them into a film that's actually a good film are the ones that are going to get credited for it. It's like history is written by the victors, right? So, yeah, that stuff was tremendously popular and super important. Not only to, you know, people that were a fan of that culture, but people that were born into that culture. And I think one could argue that this movie gives a voice to a lot of voiceless people of that generation that um, were in the background of films in a different context. But in this, a lot of it's brought to light and given humor and given context that can make the black community proud of the fact that they've developed a really interesting, colorful culture um, and that it can be inclusive. I think it gets more inclusive every year. And I think it, it's becoming more American culture instead of just white or black. And I think that's a really powerful message in this movie too, is that we can meet in the middle and appreciate each other's differences. Maybe we tease each other a little bit, but it's all love in the end. It's a movie at, at the end of the day, that's about friendship. Even though they have the most fucked up friendship and they screw each other over Wesley even, or not Wesley, sorry, Sidney Dean tries at even one point not to take Billy Hoyle's money. And Billy is so self-destructive mm-hmm. that he, he gets rid of it anyway. Billy is such a flawed character, and I want to say one of the reasons that this movie stuck with me, at that point I'd really never seen a film where the hero didn't get the girl, no matter what he did. You know, Mr. Magoo and Mr. Bean would walk out of the theater with the girl. <laughs> and Billy is a fuck-up. He really... Billy's not smart. That's made readily apparent in multiple scenes that Billy's not the most intelligent guy in the world. It's played for laughs. But when I watched it this afternoon, I was a little sad. I was like, man, really, Billy's really stupid. You know, I'd say he's he's really street smart, but he's terrible at everything else. And he is, like you said, he's very self-destructive. 
I think he's charismatic. Obviously, he's extremely talented on the court, and that's taken him, you know, so far. But I think the tragic thing about him is that he has pigeonholed himself into a box that he will never escape. He will only ever be as good as a street hustler. He's damn good at it, but, you know, that's a pretty one-way road. And I guess it's kind of implied that Billy is going to get a job at the end of the movie. Gloria, though, played brilliantly by Rosie Perez, who I love, is the only character that really gets what she wants. It's implied that Wesley, that money that he got from beating King and Duck at the end of the film, is enough to get his wife out of the hood and into a nice place. I know we're skipping way ahead here. But you don't really... You don't really know what's going to happen to those characters. I hope that Gloria went on and won tons of money on Jeopardy. Yeah, I think it's it kind of follows the uh, the vein of an arty or in-house or uh, independent film where it gives you a lot of character without necessarily forced development following like that hero story or those kind of traditional contexts. It gives us very lived-in, realistic characters who we have to appreciate for all of their faults. And at the end, it leaving it so ambiguous leaves us to make up our own ending, which can be frustrating for certain audiences. And I think a lot of movies in the current era suffer from it because audiences want to be spoon-fed answers. I think people aren't really looking for intellectual stimulation that way, except for like you know a handful of Oscar nominees at the end of the year, where people go, "Oh, you know, let's turn my brain on for five minutes and like see what this movie's about." But this movie gives you a lot to think about afterwards and I think that no matter which character of like the three main characters you look at someone can find a piece of themselves in there maybe it's a piece they're proud of maybe it's a piece that's kind of hard to look at but it's real and for that you have to commend it for being kind of ahead of its time and Ron Shelton who wrote and directed this movie always wanted to make a basketball film before this the studio didn't let him do it he made Bull Durham. Huge hit baseball movie with Kevin Costner. I'm sure you've seen it. Susan Sarandon. It's a great film. Tim Robbins. That is what enabled him to get the money and the clout to make this. But in 1997, so five years after this came out, there was some sort of breach of contract, and he sued uh, Paramount. Or is it 20th Century Fox? I can't remember. Paramount. It's Paramount. He sued them for $10 million and has never worked with them since. And it's also the reason we did not get the sequel, which was planned. And I don't know if we ever would have gotten a sequel because like we talked about earlier, both of the lead actors to the stratosphere after this, I would say that Woody hasn't ever come down. Wesley had some problems with the, the law and getting baked on the set of blade. It seems like he's really doing great now. Yep. But Woody's star, I would argue, has continued to rise. Yeah, I mean, I think he's found sort of a comfortable niche uh, in the market. He's not exactly your leading man, but whatever he's in something, you go, I like that guy. I want to see that just because like, he's going to bring some sort of fun you know, character quirks to it or, or some sort of humility to it. Uh, you know, I think Wesley Snipes becoming more of like an action star and Woody Harrison, in my opinion, becoming more of a comedy based star uh makes a lot of sense if you trace it back to these characters that they play in this movie they they definitely set themselves up as quick talking fast people with uh you know a really sharp wit and uh you know sydney's more physical 
and Billy's more mental in their approach to the game. And I think that kind of played into their career in sort of a serendipitous way. Who do you think was the better basketball player? I would say Billy, but only because of what he says in the movie where he's basically calling out Sydney for being too flashy. I think, you know, in physics, it's like, what's the quickest way to from point A to point B, a straight line. Uh, flashiness is fun if you're trying to impress girls and stuff like that or make guys think that you're so good that you can dance circles around them. But on a basketball court, there's a little room for it. And honestly, in professional basketball or even pickup basketball with, with good friends, it can be a sign of disrespect. And I think I think that's one thing that a young man would try and bring to their game. But someone who's a little wiser, a little older, who has polished their game and knows that their game speaks for itself. They don't need to add flash to it. I'll, I'll pick Billy as the uh, as the better player. It's interesting you say that because in real life, Woody was also the better basketball player. In fact, it's the reason he got the role over Charlie Sheen and multiple other famous actors from that time. I'm not going to do the whole list, but what Ron did is the auditions were on a court and you come out and play. One of Shelton's big things is I will not have fake sports in my movies. The motions have to look accurate. The basketball has to look accurate. And I was going to ask you, as someone who plays the game, you said you have to get up tomorrow, and I'm going to make sure you have a nice hangover on the court tomorrow, bud. <laughs> but how is the basketball for you? Because I can't, I can't tell, to be honest with you. For me, it looks great. From a cinematic perspective, I think it looks, it looks awesome. I'm never lost. I know what's happening in the game. But what, what do you think? You play. I would say that the game is represented really well in this uh, movie as well as the street aspect of the game because there's different levels to basketball. If you watch NBA, you watch college, you watch high school, and you watch people at the park, it's very different. The levels are not just different based on your skill, the height, you know, the, the level of talent. Those things obviously escalate as you go closer to the NBA college route. But the way that you play, and I think that speaks to how – uh, the backgrounds of these characters are the fact that Sydney's always been a street player. So he, he, his flash is built into his game because when you're young and you can't dunk and you can't be physical with like the older guys you're learning the game from, which I had a lot of blacktop uh, lessons getting knocked on my ass by big 40 year old guys and stuff that still played the game and made me look stupid when I was young and skinny. Um, you know, adding flash is a way to stand out and it's also a way to get respect when maybe some other aspects of your games are lacking. You know, you can't always practice defense or passing if you don't have anyone growing up in a bad neighborhood. You know, sometimes people show up at the park, sometimes people didn't. And the one thing you could always practice is your dribbling. I remember carrying a basketball around all through middle school and high school. I had it with me like it was surgically attached to my wrist. So those aspects of the game were really well represented. I'd say the only thing that seems sort of unrealistic is – there are several times where Billy's guarding a much more muscular, stronger, bigger guy, and in real life, they would just body him under the basket. They'd say, mouse in the house, and they'd put their ass against his chest and not, basically knock him back until they could just lay it up. But in the game, I think he's such a good pickpocket where he can steal the ball all the time that because that's such a threat, I think it puts people a little bit on guard. And so when they try and back him down, he just goes around the backside steals that ball and that's exactly what a player who has a size disadvantage would do in real life because we looked it up earlier Woody Harrelson is 5'10 so he's an inch taller than I am on a good day 
Yeah, but I mean, in basketball, that doesn't mean shit. No. Especially if you're scrawny, because you could be tall and scrawny. And I've had, like, when I was, I was 6'2 in ninth grade, and I weighed like a buck 40. My, my uh, nickname was Birdcage because of how my ribs looked on a bench press. I would get bodied up by guys shorter than me. That I were thought it was because of your love for Nathan Lane. No, no. I mean, all respect to Nathan Lane. Great, great actor, great uh, comedian. But, um, yeah, no, it was because of my horrendous skinniness. You know, I looked like I just walked out of Auschwitz or something. But, yeah, I mean, like you can get bodied up by people that are shorter than you. So height isn't always an advantage when you're young. Uh, but as you get older, obviously, you, you fill out and things change. But I think the game is really well represented in this. And I think speaking to what you said about the writer-director loving the game and wanting to make a movie that respected it, you feel that in the movie big time. I mean, you don't feel you don't feel the same level of respect in all sports movies because sometimes it's more about the person or the story or like, you know, um, or how it hit uh, headlines if it's a true story. But in this, it's really a love letter to basketball from a street perspective with you know, a really well-rounded, interesting characters that you don't always see in sports movies. A lot of times they're just archetypes. And you mentioned that Sydney was a street player. I think that's, they even, Sydney tells a story, which I don't know is true or not, about how Michael Jordan came down to the Venice Beach courts and played against Sydney, and Sydney, Sydney took him to the hole, and Michael said, you should pro- play a summer pro league, and Sydney said, no. That's NBA basketball. That, that'll that fuck up my shot. That'll fuck up my game. Woody, they talk about, was a college player. He was an NCAA basketball player. And I think I could, you can definitely see the two styles between them. You can also see the style in the shit talking. And this goes back to what you said, that Woody is street smart. Or, God, I'm going to fuck this up all night. Billy is street smart, but not world smart or uh, you know financially smart. His level of manipulation is amazing. And it starts at the beginning of the movie when he's just dorky white dude, like, must be look of the Irish, except I'm not Irish, so you figure it out. Woody just, or uh, Billy just being dumb as shit until the second he knows he has Sydney and his facial expression and everything changes. And it starts with, well, you just shut the fuck up. And like, immediately you're like, oh. He is about to take his money and leans in behind him and says one of my favorite lines in cinema history, don't worry, Sydney, I've hustled plenty of better players than you. And you can see the look on Wesley Snipes' face sells the entire scene, and you know he's going to miss that shot. It's one of the best openings of a film, I think, ever, in my opinion. You get the closer walk with me, with the Venice Beach Boys, Right into that great scene, you get a line that my dad and I still quote to this day. We go in Sizzler. Sizzler doesn't even fucking exist anymore, but us people that are old, we remember Sizzler. Yeah, we go in Sizzler. Yeah, I remember a Family Guy joke recently about Sizzler. They're like, Sizzler, the worst version of your favorite meal. <laughs> Come to Sizzler. <laughs> and I was like, that pretty much encapsulates it. If, if you ever went to a buffet and you're like, wow, this buffet's really cheap. Yeah, you're going to feel it in the bathroom later. That was Sizzler. But it was still like a dream for people in the hood to go to Sizzler. And uh, I was one of those people <laughs> for a long time. You know, I'm white, middle-class kid. We would go to Sizzler sometimes after church. I'm not going to—I don't think Sizzler was total crap in 1992. Maybe it was. The joke The joke still totally lands because Kadeem Hardison is so stoked 
to go to Sizzler. And Kadeem coming off of a different world. Woody was coming off of Cheers. Kadeem was coming off of a different world. Let's get in a little bit back to the, the basketball before we just go off on some facts. I thought it was shot well. I found out today how it was shot. They would put a refrigerator box on the court and make them play around that. And then they would put the steady cam there in the middle. And so all the that's how all, why the basketball all looks realistic. Also, they didn't just like, okay, Woody's going to lay up the ball and pass it to uh, Wesley. They would play full games. And Ron would script out, okay, you guys score, you guys score. Then you guys score twice and you guys score once. And, and this will go back and forth and continue to talk to each other and continue to talk shit. And Wesley even said that interview I watched with him today, he got a lot of freedom on the shit talking. And I think you can tell that because it really feels realistic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're watching it, it almost feels like above the level of anyone else who did it, like in real life, because obviously a lot of it is scripted, but uh, the delivery is just so razor sharp and fast. And I don't know if, if anyone was actually that good at it in real life, you would just uh, stay the hell away from the park because you'd be afraid to be verbally eviscerated. But, you know, I thought of something based on the basketball that since you when you were talking. If you think about it, this director had a massive love for the game coming out of the 80s into the early 90s. These two players, one's black and flashy, one's white and a really good shooter, who do they remind you of from the 80s that may or may not have saved the NBA as a, an entire organization that was trailing and set the stage for Michael Jordan and everyone now to take it into the stratosphere and, and make every franchise, you know, multi-billion dollar franchises? It's Magic and Bird, man. These guys are what if Magic and Bird met under these circumstances and they had to work together. That'd be scary as shit for anyone against them because – not only are these guys very talented in two different ways, but they are ridiculously competitive, and it comes out in, through their personality in also very interesting in different ways, just like Magic and Bird. And you get hustling Woody in the beginning of the movie. When you get to the tournament in the middle of the film, you do get Larry Bird. You get fully unhinged Billy Hoyle talking shit to every single person on that court, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie when he just yells right in Sydney's face, I'm in the zone, man. I'm in the fucking zone. We should have been able to tell that Woody was going to be a really good actor from White Men Can Jump. I don't know if a lot of people believed it at that point. The machismo in the movie, the bravado of the movie. I'm going to try to to nail this right here just because I think it needs to be said on the podcast. But shut your anorexic, malnutrition, tapeworm, have an overdose, Dick Gregory, bohemian, diet-drinking ass up. You don't get dialogue like that in anymore. <laughs> that is like essentially a tongue twister. I think those are like those should be used as exercises to get actors like warm before a scene just to get their like diction and everything ready. I wonder if that was improvised or was that written? I couldn't find the answer today. I was really curious because I knew they were allowed to do a lot of improv. And like we talked about how the basketball scenes were shot. Who knows when 
whatever Woody was saying at the time or Wesley was saying at the time was going to get thrown into the script during during the sports scenes. Yeah, I mean, honestly, they probably insulted the shit out of each other all day long and then just picked the best ones, the ones that really flowed together almost like, you know, ridiculously uh, insensitive poetry. <laughs> we haven't gotten into the relationship part of the movie. So let's talk a little bit about one a scene that I always reference. And that's when after sex or whatever, I think it's after sex, Gloria and Billy are laying around and she's like, Billy, I'm thirsty. That's a fucking terrible impression. But and he gets up to get her water. She's like, no, no. If I ask you or I tell you that I'm thirsty, I don't want you to get me water. I want you to empathize with my dry mouthedness. I want you to also tell me that you've had a dry mouth. And that was groundbreaking for me as someone trying to date women in high school. <laughs> Realizing that I was playing with a different rule book. Not rule book. That's not the best way to say it, but it's a different language. There, That's a way better way to say it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I grew up around women. I'm the first boy in four generations of my family, so I basically women is my first language. Uh, it was a lot harder for me to bond with guys growing up, um, and sports was a big way that I did that, actually. But, yeah, I, I think that's really funny because that bit in the movie with her saying to not get her the water, to just be, you know, understanding, to be compassionate, is a really interesting kind of social paradigm because I it immediately made me think of a social or a, um, a stand-up bit that I had heard a long time ago where uh, – the woman basically says they're both laying in bed. They're both ready to fall asleep. Their eyes are like on the way shutting. The woman just goes, I'm cold. And the guy instinctually gets up and he walks over to close the window. And halfway to the window, he realizes he's trained like a dog. And that's what marriage does to men. You know, it's like happy wife, happy life. And, and you know, um, this, this movie putting that kind of social norm on its, you know, upside down is, is really interesting because I think even if you do speak the same language or you're bilingual, you never know what the days are going to throw at you. You know, it, it, it's really like it's whatever the woman needs at the time. You know, any other day that water would have been a really nice gesture and she would have been happy. She didn't have to get out of bed when she's all comfy. But that day she wanted something different. And maybe that speaks to her character. Maybe it speaks to his, the love he doesn't give, the love he is giving. Because everyone, like, they have love languages and stuff like that, you know, and one's acts of service, physical touch, all those kinds of things. And obviously, compassion is a big one for her. And uh, he obviously was late to that party. And I think the whole movie plays out with him always being about a step behind, and he loses her for that. He does write the beautiful song, Gloria, which I still sing to myself in the shower, in the car, to this day. Let's get a few lines. All right, hang on. I'll never bring you water when you're thirsting in our bed. I know screw-ins for carpenters, but let's make love instead. Gloria. Wow. Right? Ladies and gentlemen. That might not be released because I don't ever sing because I'm tone deaf, but that song, it, he walks into her dressing room after she wins on Jeopardy and sings that to her. And I thought that was one of the most romantic gestures I'd ever seen in a film. And it leads you to believe, man, 
He's going to get his shit together, dude. He's going to get Gloria back. You think they're going to make it, and that's what it wants you to think. I love that this movie takes so many tropes and just flips them on their head. It's great. I think before internet culture, this didn't make the impact it would have if it would have come out in an age of, of Twitter or things like that. I don't know how you make a street ball movie nowadays, but they're trying to remake this. That sounds awful. But and also it could be interesting. The director and creator of Blackish wants to do it. The only person so far that has been rumored to be cast is Blake Griffin. Blake, Blake Griffin as an actor? He, oh, my God. Wesley Snipes asked a reporter, what, is he playing Sidney and Billy's kid? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't come across a lot of, uh, what, 6'10", 250-pound black gingers? <laughs> well, that if you're going to cast Blake Griffin, who's he going to play? The problem is, right now in Blake Griffin's career in 2020, he's playing in Detroit on a not-playoff team in the East. And out of 30 teams in the NBA, I don't think 26 teams would cast him. So why would the fuck would this movie cast him? Luckily, like a lot of potential remakes, there hasn't been any traction in the last couple years. So I'm hoping that they leave this be. I don't think this is a movie that needs a remake. I don't think a remake would have as much impact nowadays. Is Streetball still a thing, though, right? Streetball, I think, peaked in like 2004, 2005, when the and one, you know, hoop stuff was really popular. You can still find it on YouTube, but like they used to put out these mixtapes that were just these like amazing guys. And a lot of people know some of them, Hot Sauce, The Professor, those guys would just show up at Rucker Park or like whatever famous you know, venue uh, in these big inner cities, and they would just take these shit-talking, amazing basketball players and make them look stupid. they put the ball up in their shirt, flip it around, put it between their legs, hit a three, you know, and um, these guys were amazing. A few of them, I think one of them was named Skip to my Lou. He actually made it to the NBA. His name was Rafer Alston in real life. He played for the Rockets for a while, and I think Orlando. But mixed, you know, those mixtapes, they're like, you got to dust them off to watch them now. People don't film that stuff and like if you see the professor or something it's probably because he's trying to be like a social media influencer anymore because the world's changed a lot and streetball was really cool but it also it was a fixture of the style at the time that was when like you know throwback jerseys were a big deal you know you'd buy those ugly jeans with like all the logos of the nba on them and like those were like 150 bucks you're like holy shit that guy's like balling but no like i think it if it was going to happen, it should have happened at like the 12 or 13 year anniversary mark. Happening now, it's such a different world. I don't think that people idolize streetball players anymore. And also, I think this movie creates a really unique cultural and you know timeline snapshot that would be really hard to replicate. All the way down to the singers, the what are they called? What's their name? The Venice Beach Boys. Yeah, I mean they, in my opinion. They're the first thing you see and hear in the film, if I'm correct. And they set the tone for the entire film to the point where they bookend certain scenes and the entire movie as a whole starts and ends with them. So do you see guys like that hanging out at parks now? No, it's a very different world. And I think the world that's encapsulated in this movie 
is special and if you wanted to remake it you'd have to just do something completely different if you wanted to steal the name and do something else with it that's fine but this movie will always be a one and done in my opinion the way it should be and you know kadeem hardison would be happy that it's a different world nowadays they did get a video game since this is bit-faced i figured i'd mention that there is an atari jaguar video game (laughs) I watched about seven minutes of gameplay today on YouTube. I was able to find more Atari Jaguar White Men Can't Jump gameplay than actual White Men Can't Jump information, and the game looks like dog shit. Yeah. The graphics, honestly, for the time look great, but the actual gameplay, and I'm not playing it, so I can't judge it. I don't have the controller in my hand, but I could just tell by this guy's reaction and how the characters are moving on the screen that he was playing a pretty crappy game maybe the game was supposed to be themed like the movie so you buy the game no refunds you just got hustled <laughs> that's the fucking <laughs> old experience <laughs> do people still street ball hustle i don't think so i mean i don't live in chicago or new york a couple places where i think it would really happen i am sure you know there's friendly bets and shit here and there you've but- got a game tomorrow down at the wire you guys gonna be throwing down throwing some jack on that breakfast no, honestly, uh, it's so funny to me because that's one of the things I say all the time when I play with someone I haven't played with before and they get really into it. Uh, and it's good to be into it. And, and we have a friendly competition, but sometimes there's a guy that comes in there. Usually it's some kind of roided out ex-football player that doesn't play football, like basketball for shit. And they're really physical and they're really aggressive. And when they miss a shot, they go, fuck. And they, you know, they slam their fists on the wall and they leave early in a huff. And I'm like, man, this guy's playing like we got fucking money on the game. And we don't. So I don't understand, like, I play for the love of the game. I grew up with Michael Jordan, practiced my fadeaway when I was like five fucking years old. And you know what? It doesn't matter who you idolize or, or, or when you grew up. The game has a fluidity to it, and you can play it well into your 50s, 60s healthily. I played with guys that are much older than me, and they always, I always learn something from them. You know, they always do something a little different. And I don't know. I just don't understand people that are like that. And I, I've never put money on a game because to me that would just corrupt something I love. That's very pure, and it's honestly a really great source of friendship for me. I've made tons of great friends, and I think you can probably appreciate this, but as, as a white guy growing up you know, in certain neighborhoods, it, it may be easy or not easy to make friends of other races, and sometimes other races are really protective of their environment, and, and they should be. That's fine. Like you know, That's historically makes sense, but I've made – so many of my friends of different races from sports and they're friends I wouldn't trade for the world. And I just think that that's the most beautiful thing about basketball is whether you love it or hate it, it brings people together, people from all over the world. Look at the NBA. Now you got guys from Russia and, and, and playing with people that grew up in LA and they're on the same team. They don't even speak the same language, but they speak one language and it's fucking basketball. I like that. And that kind of brings us back to what the film is all about. It's about the friendship between Billy and Sydney, and the fact that they both have women to please. And at the end of the movie, one doesn't have a woman to please anymore because he could he didn't learn his lessons. You could argue that he's trying to please her, and it being left ambiguous with him asking to get a job. Now, if he follows follows through, we don't know, but he's not asking for a job for anyone but Gloria. Even if he never gets her back, I think that's an attempt to realize some of his mistakes but i mean i think for me it's it's the whole tiger tiger can't change his stripes right this guy 
he fucks up and fucks up and fucks up and he knows exactly what his weakness is. But just like an alcoholic walking through the bar after a hard day or walking into a bar after the hard day, he keeps going back. And I think for me, it's that he chooses his passion over his love. And that's really powerful because everyone should have a passion in this world. I think people that are lost souls just haven't found their passion yet. But he found his. It might be self-destructive, but it's what makes him feel alive. It's what makes him feel like a man. It's what he's really good at. And eventually, yeah, I think he chose his passion over his love, and he's going to live with it. Do you think that Billy is being insincere when he tells Gloria that, hey, Summer Pro League's not knocking down my door. I probably need to figure out something to do with my life. You think that's just more more lip service, more more keeping her around for a few more days? I think that an athlete past their prime has really hard realizations to make. I think that a man having to admit he's not quite the man he used to be about something that means a lot to him is really difficult. And I think he's at that point trying to convince himself of that but every day he laces him up and goes to that park he's trying to relive something he's trying to get something back he's trying to hold on to something he's clinging on it you know for for dear life and uh, I think she knows it more than he does because she can see from the outside looking in I don't think he's that reflective but yeah I do think that part of it is just telling her what she wants to hear because God knows he doesn't want to hear it I've always thought the theme of the movie comes down to Wesley's speech. Four words is what he says to Billy. Listen to the woman. And I have taken that lesson throughout my life, and it rings in the back of my head sometimes, and it has paid off dividends. So thank you, Sidney Dean. (laughs) Woody even comes back to him at the end and says, so if I listen to the woman, do I have to agree with her? (laughs) And... Sydney says, no, you start with just listening. You can work on agreeing later on down the road. It was powerful for me. He loses Gloria because he's dumb about it. And he might be a great basketball player, but like you said, that's not going to last. And without Gloria, what is Billy Hoyle? I mean, they've been through thick and thin. They've been running from the mafia for what it seems like at least a couple months when the movie starts takes him from the East Coast to California where no one knows him. Yeah, I think that uh, the whole listen to the woman speech, it kind of harkens back to the water, right? Because in that moment, he heard what she said, but was he listening? And women will always argue that there's an immense difference. And that difference might be the difference between you guys going to bed happy or her walking out the door with a bag. And that's what this movie shows you. Which parallels... Sydney, you can't hear Jimmy. You can't hear him. You that's the problem with you people. You listen. You don't hear it. And it's one of the, the greatest moments when Gloria's like, Jimmy's drummer is a white dude. And Sydney's like, no. And they pull out the cover of the tape and what he's <laughs> like, the whole goddamn band's white. You can't hear Jimmy. You listen to him. But you can't hear him. Yeah, I think that I've never put that parallel together between Gloria and Sydney until right now, dude. Yeah, that is a social juxtaposition. That's a this is for me, not for you. That's like 
the the whole FUBU brand is based on that, right? For us, by us, and stuff like that. I think that that's the thing that's really important in American culture and in African American culture, but it's also something that's like unintentionally segregating. Because if you say this is all the way over here and it's only for us and no one else can have it, nothing will make other people want it, like saying they can't have it. And I think, you know, if you look at like rap right now in 2020, I think something crazy like 65 or 70 percent of people that listen to rap are like white teenagers. Like it's really the statistics are kind of ridiculous, but that's all it plays into our population densities and stuff like that. But I think the truth is that all cultures will always have at least some bleed over of things that other cultures can appreciate and integrate. And at the end of our human civilization, whenever that might be when the sun burns out in a billion years or if we get into some kind of crazy nuclear warfare in 20 years, hopefully not, I think that the the merging of cultures, it creates as much conflict as it does intrigue and cohesiveness. And that's another part of this movie that I love. It just brings people together. Well, I don't think there's a better way to end the episode than that you made me realize something that I didn't realize about a movie I've seen realistically 50 times and hell, I might watch it again tonight. That's how much I love this film. Let's do it. Yeah. This was really enjoyable. Casey, thank you so much for coming by and talking to me about this. The deal I made with Casey was if he did this, he gets to pick the next film that we do. So whatever comes up next, that's what you guys are going to be subjected to. I also would really like if there's a movie you guys want us to talk about and not just Casey and I anyone that you guys have heard on BitFace if there's a film you want to talk about hell if you want to come on the show and talk about a film you're passionate about convince me that's what I ask I'm not going to just bring anybody on here those days are long past BitFaced (laughs) but If you've got a film that you're passionate about and you think you can sit down with me in person or even over the internet and talk about it, let's do it. That passion to the mic. Bring it to the mic. So that's a challenge to you. I get often asked, what does it take to get on BitFaced? Here you go. If you've got a movie that you're passionate about, we would love to hear about it. So send me a message on IM. A lot of you do already, and I respond pretty regularly Casey, again, thank you so much for coming by. It was a pleasure. The Bit Cave tonight, it was great to record with you. Finally, we've talked about this, what, two years ago and finally sat down and did it. That's about how things go around here. So. I think it's going to happen a lot more often now. I hope so. We, we live pretty close to each other now. Yep. And you do get to pick the next movie. And, and trust me, Casey's not going to pick something as fun or as critically acclaimed as White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to pick something like Geely. You know, you can never know what to expect. <laughs> no, it's not going to be Geely. You know whatever you pick is going to influence whatever I pick, and hopefully someone from BitFaced will want to throw something in there. I really want to watch something I've never seen before that someone loves as much as I love this movie. I'll try and dig deep, but if I had to go off the top of my head right now, it's going to be something from Scorsese or something from Tarantino, uh, just because they're super huge influences to me and some of the best living act uh, directors right now in the world. From the Bit Cave, Casey McMullen, I am your host, as always, Eric G. Hollis, and I can hear Jimmy. <laughs>